RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. There's not a day that goes by without seeing a property story in the media. Have you noticed that? Usually it's uh, around uh, how low can it go? Is it hitting the bottom? Uh, The median house price is something we read about a lot. That always seemed to go up. So what is the state of the property market? One person we can ask to give us a, a really good description of it is Ashley Church. Might have heard that name before. Political and social commentator. And uh, he is a former CEO of the Property Institute, former chairman of the Taxpayers Union. And we're going to pick his brain right now. That's all right, Ashley. Is that okay? No, no problem at all, Paul. <laughs> nice to have you on. I'm at Reality Check Radio. Thanks for Thank making you. a bit of time for us. Has there been a crash? This is the big question. Well, the, 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 it's an interesting question because it really depends on your own definition. There is no formal definition of a market crash, which might surprise you given that it's something that media is so animated about and fixate themselves on at various different times. You would think that they're talking about something on which there's some agreement. There's not. Um, and so uh, in the absence of a formal definition, about four years ago, I, I d- devised my own, um, which a lot of media seem to have subsequently picked up. So my definition was if the if the median house price across the country fell by more than 20%, and then having dropped by 20%, it stayed at that level or lower for, for 12 months, yeah. then that could reasonably be defined as a crash. Now, you could argue that. There'd be people who say that's too extreme. There'd be others who say that's not nearly extreme enough. But but that's the one that seems to be uh, to, to have attracted sort of a, a reasonable degree of, of consensus. Um, by that definition, Paul, we know we're near a crash. Uh, right. the, How far the, off are we from it then? Miles, miles and miles and miles. Over the last uh, uh, 12 or 13 months, sorry, 18 months since this this downturn started taking place as the result of two quite specific things about 18 months ago, uh, we've dropped by about 12.9%. Okay. Uh, across the country. So that's to be fair, there are parts of the country where that's higher. So in Wellington, yeah. for example, prices have fallen by 20%. So you could argue that if they stay down at that level for the next 12 months, then the Wellington market could be said to have crashed. Um, but across the country, no, we're not we're not even close. And and what's interesting about that is that we're probably about we've fallen now probably about as far as we're going to fall. And if we haven't fallen as far as we're going to fall, we're pretty close to it. So the, the market isn't going to crash. How do you know it's about as far as we're going to fall? What are oh, the because, indicators? Because of we that? know, yeah, because we know what caused it. We, the two things caused it. One of them was the the changes to the credit, Consumer Credit Finance Act about in December two thousand and twenty one. Um, and and that was chilling. That was a result of some stupid legislation, uh, which essentially made it so difficult for the banks to lend money that they just stopped doing so for for about seven months until. Uh, until what were what were the difficulties that were imposed? Well, you'll remember at the time. You'll remember the headlines about whether people were drinking too many lattes or drinking eating too much KFC, and all. Do you remember those? Oh yeah, so where that, they were asking those questions. Yeah, you know, yeah, like that's if you that was what that was daily habits. Exactly. So the banks imposed a whole range of additional criteria to make sure that they weren't falling foul of the legislation. Because if they did, then the fines that were imposed on on banks for for each single in, incursion were, were upwards of two hundred thousand dollars. It was a, it was an extraordinary situation. That in itself would have resolved itself, um, albeit slowly. But in February of two thousand and twenty-two, we got the second whammy, which was the uh, massive increase in inflation. Uh, which happened right. not just here, but right around the Western world. And the impact of that, and we know what caused this, was that the Reserve Bank, whose remit is to keep inflation between 1% and 3%, decided that they needed to do something to squeeze demand out of the economy in order to get inflation down. So they pushed the OCR up. The OCR is this thing called the official cash rate. And they, the reason they pushed that up is because it's a signal to the banks that they want inflation, uh, they want mortgage rates to go higher. Um, and they did. They went up. They they went from you know low levels of around three percent to upwards at the moment of sort of six. You know, tapping on seven percent on at, at the floating rate level. Um, and that 
almost exclusively, Paul, that is what caused the downturn in the market. Um, right. And yeah. so the, ref- the the effect of that has been uh, that house prices have dropped. And the reason for that is not so much that the, the, the rates, the new rates were unaffordable, although they obviously were for some people. It was more the fear that if I buy a house now, and the house in six months' time, not only might the house price be lower than it was what I paid for it, but and here's the real whammy: interest rates might have gone up even higher. So if I fix my house at you know twelve months now at whatever rate, when I come to refix it in twelve months' time, that rate could be even higher, and yeah. that scared people. That killed confidence in the market. And that's both fair those, enough. Yes, yeah, both of those things, Paul, have gone. Both of them have disappeared. Okay, so that, that's why I say we're at the bottom. So all right, so there's some localized crashing like you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, well, one that, or two locations. And that will have the particular drivers for that. So the confidence is is coming back. Well, confidence is an interesting word. There's certainly not going to be people popping champagne and rushing out to buy houses and spend lots of money on them. But, and there probably shouldn't be, to be fair, but there will certainly be people starting to tentatively creep back into the market. And we're already seeing that around the country. We're seeing the sales volumes amongst real estate agencies up and down the country starting to increase from historically low levels over the last 12 or 18 months. So that that, that slow tentative confidence is definitely uh, uh, returning. How are people then affording the extra um, cost of interest? Has that been factored in somewhere along the way? It has completely by accident. So uh, so prior to all of this happening, the banks um, were experimenting with all sorts of weird things, one of which was they increased what they called their servicing rates. So what that meant was you went along to the bank uh, to apply for a mortgage and the, 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 the banks were applying a, an interest rate as a test rate, which was much, much higher than what you were actually paying um, at, at the retail end of the market. And so, and the reason they argued at the time that they were doing that was to make sure that if there was any change in interest rates, you could afford any increase. And they were, they were really getting slagged for it, to be honest, because- Yeah, I remember actually, yeah. Yeah, the rates were much higher than we were actually paying. Well, here's the thing, that pretty much that's where rates have moved to over the yeah. last 18 or so months. So they now. knew? They no. knew? <laughs> no, they, they didn't. didn't. No, they didn't. It was complete. It was it was d- dumb luck, basically. I bet they think um, they're geniuses. Yeah, they will. Yeah, so so it wasn't. However, the fact that they did that, it's still tough. Don't get me wrong; it's tough for people. But it, but it could have been worse if if they were you know testing people on four or five percent and rates went to seven or eight. That could have been uh, diabolical for people. So it's so it's a bit better than it could have been. The whole confidence thing—you got to see a, you know, a bit of a future when you go buy a house, especially you got a family because you, you, you know, there's a, a responsibility that goes with having that dwelling that's just more than a capital gain. But you don't want to be going backwards that terrible negative equity thing. So yeah. having that confidence, I'm wondering also because the government has announced some a pretty big numbers on immigration as well. Does that put Demand it must put demand into the. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. I've, I've I've spent a few years looking at this whole thing about what causes house prices to go up, and I came three or four years ago to a pretty clear conclusion, which I can back up with a lot of empirical data that basically says that if you look at all the different factors that drive house prices, and I'm and I'm making this number I'm about to give you up for for impact, but you'll understand why I'm doing it. Right. About ninety percent of all house price increases are to do with one thing and one thing only, and that's the cost of money. So all of those other things. Uh, the lack of supply, 
um, uh, immigration, all of those other things that people look at and say that's what drives house prices, they make up the other 10%. So, okay. so immigration is a factor, but it's not a big factor. Now, I should make the point that immigration drives demand. It doesn't drive house growth. What do I mean by that? They're two separate things. Immigration means that there'll be more demand for housing, so people, so more people will buy, and that puts a bit more demand in the market. What it doesn't do is it doesn't push house prices up uh, to, to any huge degree. Money does that. The cost of money does that. And, and the data for that's overwhelming. Yeah, cheaper the money. Cheaper the money, the higher the house price. Yeah. yeah. And it well, makes that's sense. A, about that's it. pretty simple to understand, <laughs> even for someone like me. And, and me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so th- there's not a whole huge number of Kiwis out there sort of depressed as hell because they feel they're in neg- negative equity and it's never going to end. Um, that uh, bottoming out, that uh, the story I saw, um they should people should feel good about that well, or, or? goods goods are a relative term and there'll be people who still feel pretty hard done by but but that declining equity you talked about even that's relative because uh have house prices dropped over the last 12 or 18 months yes they have but they are still and this is really important even in Wellington they are still at least 10 and in some cases 15 and even 20 percent higher than they were in 2020 okay so that's if you not like they were ago. here yeah, yeah. they went up they came down, but they didn't come down nearly as far as they'd gone up. So it's it's the folk who bought recently that yep. are probably feeling the the most negative if they are. Yeah, in fact, I saw a, a, an article. I think it was in one of the papers a couple of weeks ago that said that uh, that six percent of Kiwis had had uh, lost money on uh, what they paid for a house versus what they sold it for over the last twelve months or so. And that you know that was a doom, your doomsday prediction, as, as as a lot of these are. I looked at that. I thought six percent's nothing. I was I was actually very surprised it was that low. That that indicates to me that a lot of Kiwis basically just sat on hands and said, "Well, house prices are going down, so I won't do anything at the moment." Which is borne out, by the way, by the fact that there were so few sales over that period of time. People were just weren't selling. They they knew the market would eventually recover, and they waited for it. Are we starting to see an acceleration then in sales? That's obvious. No, uh, yeah, in, excel- in sales, yes. I thought you were going to say prices. In sales, no. we've abs- we're absolutely starting to see an acceleration in, in sales. We won't see an acceleration of prices for quite some period of time, not to any great degree, anyway. So, how how what sort of period of time till people oh, forget about what's just happened? Yeah, there's. <laughs> um, you'll you'll see some tentative increase is, is starting almost straight away, but they'll be very small. Um, the normal sort of increase that you might get in any given year during a boom period. And booms last about seven years, by the way. People forget that. And every 10-year period, about 10 of those are booms. Can, can um, you see a cycle here? Oh, absolutely. There is a cycle. Yeah. And, and it tracks with what you'd expect? Uh, pretty well. Well, th- the last uh, 18 months, no. No, this had nothing right. to do with cycles. Yeah. It was counter-cyclic. Yeah. But over the last 50 years, absolutely. Um, and and during that six or seven-year period when house prices are going up, you would expect them to increase by about 10% per annum. Why seven years? What's so special about that? Does anyone figure that one out? Years. It's actually ten years, not seven. They get so so the cycle oh, lasts okay. about ten. All right, yeah. But they go up for about seven of those ten, and the other three they just stay flat and do nothing. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty, you know, that's that sounds weird, and it's not exact. You know, it might be eleven, or it might be twelve, it might be, you know, it might be six when it's increasing. But it's pretty accurate. We know, for example, that between. Uh, 1980 to 1990, they almost exactly doubled. Between 1990 to 2000, they almost exactly doubled and so on. So you can keep tracking that right through to 2000 and 2020. What about extra um, build in the market? Is that some kind of lever that can moderate the, well, the I'm, peaks I'm, and the I'm troughs? I'm going to voice on this because you'll, you'll, you'll remember that pretty much everybody you talk to, including politicians, talk about the supply issue and building more houses. I did some numbers on this, Paul, and I wrote about it extensively at the time. 
um, just to track what the extent of the supply issue was. And I found to my surprise, uh, there is actually no supply issue. There never has been. We really? Actually, yeah. We actually built 200,000 more houses between 1986 and 2018 than we would have needed just to stand still. The the, the so-called supply uh, issue and 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 supply crisis is a complete myth. It doesn't exist. And now I'm a lone voice on that. I, there's very few people saying that, but it's just true. I can demonstrate. Well, it's trotted out all the time. It is trotted out all the time. I'll tell you where it came from. Uh, <clears throat> 2013, 2002, no, 2012 at the Labor Party's conference, the the idea of a a, a supply issue and the idea that we needed 100,000 more homes was trotted out by um, David Shearer and Annette King, who were uh, who were up in the Labor Party at the time. You probably remember leader and deputy leader, maybe leader at the and time. deputy leader at the time, and they came up with this idea of this thing called Keyword Build. You might be familiar with that. Yes, term. I remember the name. Yeah. Now that now obviously we weren't able to do anything with that for another four or five years until they came into power in 2017. But meantime. National, uh, and, and at the time it was Nick Smith was the minister, bought into this whole mythology around the supply crisis. Um, and so they started doing things to, to to build as well. Now, I went back out and did some numbers, found out, as I say, that that, that myth that doesn't exist um, and and uh, uh, that we've actually built, as I say, 200,000 more homes over that time period than we needed. But I, so then I thought, well, where did this idea come from? Because there was no report. There was no report prior to 2012 that actually indicated there was a supply crisis. And I finally found where that number came from, that 100,000 came from. Listen, you'll love this. Um, get ready. It was trotted out from a 1981 Labor Party manifesto. That was exactly the same number in 1981 that they used in their manifesto. They had simply dusted off an old policy and put it out there again, and the public bought into it. It's complete nonsense. Oh, okay. Wash, rinse, repeat. Absolutely. And it's worked. Yeah. It's worked for them. I mean, when you talk to people now, it is such a strongly believed mantra People don't know why it's a mantra. They just believe it because mm. they hear it all the time uh, that it's almost it's almost dogma, um, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Thank you for letting us know about that. Yeah, they had that idea before. Okay. Um, so in terms of the stretch ahead, knowing that it's cyclical, like you've just been saying, yep. and there will be people listening, probably more their kids are thinking of buying a house. We're slightly older on the age group. So we might have some young'uns in. I don't know. Um, what would your your pro bono in this case advice be to them at this point? First of all, don't be too negative about. Don't be negative at all. And and even even at the worst, even at twelve months ago, I was saying to people, don't be negative because the market is cyclic. So even if you'd bought, even if you'd bought at a period of time where house prices dropped after you bought, you were still as long as you were there for the long term. You're yeah, be fine. that's um, the thing. You got to be there for a stretch. Yeah, if you were trading in property, which means if you were buying property to make a profit on it, you wouldn't have touched it with a barge pod. But most people aren't doing that. Most Kiwis are buying a home to buy to, to live in, and and you know it's it's yes, it's an investment, but primarily it's a place to live and raise their kids. Yeah. Um, so for those, nothing's changed. Nothing's yeah. changed. And it's the primary. Do you know New Zealand is, is according to, and I can't remember the name of the foundation. It's a European group. Uh, New Zealand's the fifth wealthiest nation on earth. Um, but, but valued not just by in terms of income, but also in terms of value of assets that we have. And the reason for that, almost all the reasons for that, is the value of our property. Wow! It's, and the fact that it's continued to increase. Over but that, that could be seen also as as quite a Achilles heel vulnerability. Only if you don't own one. 
Only if you don't own one. If you've got a property, you're going to be pretty happy. And I, you know, and I've had that argument put to me before. They say, "Oh, yes, but it means that house prices are expensive." Yes, it does. So buy one, buy whatever they cost. Buy one because that that's going to continue to be the case going forward. Sixty five percent of Kiwis own their own home, and here's what an interesting figure for you: sixty five percent, or roughly sixty to sixty five percent of Kiwis have owned their own home uh, for almost a hundred years. That figure has been remarkably consistent. You might have seen something about a year ago that said that uh, house prices were at their lowest. Uh, sorry, home ownership was a little small. Yeah, I've seen that. Yep. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. They were referring to a number back in 2004 and it had dropped by, I think, 2% over its previous uh, uh, high. The, apart from a period in the 90s when, when we got up to about 73% and there were reasons for that, uh, home ownership's been remarkably consistent despite the doubling and doubling and doubling again of house prices over the last 40 or so years. Kiwis like owning their own home. They, they buy yeah, them. so that's a consistent cultural Very phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the flip side of that, of course, the corollary of that is it means 35% of people don't yeah, own a home. There's all sorts of reasons for that. Some of it's to do with, with unaffordability. A lot of it's a lifestyle choice for a lot of people. They just choose not to. Yeah. Um, but but that 65% figure, we should be proud of that. It's, it's, it's up there with a lot of with, with countries like the UK, Australia, United States, all around that similar sort of figure. Really interesting. Can I ask you a commercial property question? Well, I won't be able to probably help you, but try. I'll give it well, a try. Well, uh, just uh, very specific because <clears throat> we saw during COVID that a lot of, um, you know, the normal office workers and, and kind of the way workers were housed changed to Zoom, right, and that sort yep. of stuff. Yep. And we've got a few high-rises where, where I am where emergency housing has been put in. They're not the nicest ones. There's an early 70s kind of Soviet style, but they're being used. Is there any issue, and I know it's not your wheelhouse necessarily, but is there any issue with the way we, we've changed the way we're doing things that yeah, can affect th- those so values? I, my answer is based on logic rather than expertise, um, but by which I mean I don't profess to be an expert on, on commercial property, yeah. but I have had that question before. Logic would suggest that that's a reflection of changes that are taking place in society. So for exa- I'm a really good example of what I'm about to say. I live in Hawke's Bay. In fact, I live in the S Valley, believe it or not. Oh, you're still there. Yeah, I am. I'm so, I was at a part which wasn't affected. In fact, I think no watermarks there. on the books. No, no. <laughs> well, as you can see. Um, but uh, uh, and we lived in Auckland for Auckland and Wellington for most of the last twenty years because we had to in terms of the nature of the business that we conducted. And we, we don't have yeah. to do that anymore. We've got ultra fast broadband. We've got Zoom. We've got the ability. I could be having this conversation with you. You could be in London or yeah, Paris. Totally. Or yeah, we do that all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So so life has changed. Um, and and the extent there's not a lot I'll say that was good about COVID, but it did transform our attitude toward virtual meetings and the way in which we conduct business. And and it's changed forever. Um, and it will just continue to go that way. So what it does mean, this is the bit I don't know, so don't take my word on this. I assume it means that the commercial use of a lot of buildings in our inner cities will become redundant over the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I guess you've got to figure out what to do with those spaces long term then. Exactly. exactly. Green, so green come spaces. Or green yeah. space. Or yeah. your city living. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I city live. It's actually not bad at all. No. So there you go. So, so society's changing in that regard. Yeah. All right. Really interesting. I can hear uh, some sighs of relief coming back through like, oh, it's not as bad as we thought. Because I get the impression with media that they know that property stories are going to be of interest. So the more you can keep them coming through and, uh, you know, having those quite dramatic headlines from time to time, um, you'll, you'll use the stories 
to get eyeballs. Well, but it can create certain impressions, though, can't it? Yeah, that- okay. what they call clickbait. So, so the Herald's a good example of that. I used, I used to write uh, regularly for for One Roof, which is a publication owned by the Herald. And One Roof, these stories were almost always positive because they 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 sell to the property market, and that's that's their wheelhouse. Um, the Herald itself, these were negative. Uh, and so it was interesting. You've got this cultural <laughs> phenomenon going on with the one publication where it was positive on the commercial side. When I say commercial, I mean on the side that actually made money from real yeah. estate real estate agencies and negative on the other side because it was clickbait and it got people. And it was remarkable because it was often the same data and the same, and the same information, but being taken in two completely different ways depending on what the paper was trying to achieve. You've just given us a look behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> Were you supposed to do that? <laughs> oh, I, well, I, I used to just write whatever I, I yeah. think that was very good to be fair to me. They let me write whatever I wanted. So I just, uh, I just, that's well, interesting to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Ashley, thanks for making a bit of very time welcome. for us. And uh, I, we can talk other things in the future because you're not just in the property zone. But thanks for giving us your sort of uh, expertise on, well, the, uh, what would you call it, the domestic non commercial property market. Thank you for that. Absolutely. You're very welcome, Paul, and I enjoyed the chat. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.